Hi, this is Roy Shoman, and welcome again to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the fulfillment, the full realization of all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Now, of course, the heart of the fulfillment of Judaism in the Catholic Church is the fact that Judaism was, one could say, all about the coming of the Messiah, all about preparing the way to enable the second person of the Most Holy Trinity to incarnate as a man. Of course, the Jews did not realize at the time of the Old Testament that the Messiah would actually be God himself or the second person of the Most Holy Trinity. But looking back on it, we know that's exactly what they were preparing for. And, in fact, what they succeeded at, because, of course, Jesus did come, Jesus being the promised Messiah of Judaism. Um, And so, in that light, today's show is going to be about Jewish expectations of the Messiah in the Talmud and what the Talmud has to say about Jesus the Talmud being the written-down Jewish oral tradition, oral theological teaching, which had been passed down from teacher to student for a number of centuries until somewhere around the 3rd century after Christ when the Jews had basically given up on reuniting in Jerusalem or around Jerusalem. They realized that in order to preserve this oral tradition, it would have to be written down so that the various Jewish communities scattered throughout the world would have access to it. And that became the Talmud. Now, I was recently invited to be a guest on the show of a friend of mine, Gary Mishuda. Uh, His show is called Hands-On Apologetics. He's an apologist. He uh, gives reasoned reasons for belief in the Catholic faith. And he had me on to talk about exactly this subject. So my plan for today is to simply play that show, which aired a number of weeks ago on Hands-On Apologetics. It's an interview or a discussion uh, between me and Gary Machuda on Jesus in the Talmud and the Jewish expectations of the coming Messiah as reflected in the Talmud. So with that introduction... Uh, I hope you enjoy the show, and I'll come back with a short closing at the end of the broadcast. Thank you for listening. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-on apologetics. Like I said, the the theme this week seems to be the question, Jesus, who do you say I am? And uh, to help us work through uh, uh, who do uh, the the, uh, sages of the Talmud say Jesus is or the Messiah is, uh, we have somebody who's uniquely qualified to help walk us through this material. And that's Roy Shoman. Roy Shoman is, uh, was born in the suburb of New York City of conservative Jewish parents who fled Nazi Germany. His Jewish education and formation was received under the most prominent rabbis in contemporary American Jewry. Uh, he received a Bachelor of Science from MIT and an MBA, magna cum laude, from uh, Harvard Business School. But midway through his career teaching and consulting, uh, in fact, uh, he had been appointed to the faculty of Harvard Business School. He experienced an unexpected instantaneous conversion to Christianity, and he's been in, on fire for Jesus and uh, 
and sharing the faith. Uh, he's the author of a couple of awesome books, which I highly recommend that you pick up. One is called Salvation is from the Jews, and the other is Honey from the Rock, 16 Jews Find the Sweetness of Christ. In fact, if you want to hear uh, Roy's journey of faith, we did cover that in detail on our January 22nd episode. Uh, episode. So uh, jump on that on the podcast and listen to it, folks, because it, it truly is a remarkable journey to the faith. So Roy Schoen, welcome to Hands On Apologetics. Hi, thanks for, thanks for having me back. Um, it's always a pleasure. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, Roy, uh, before we jump into the, the material in the Talmud, uh, can you share with us, like, how would uh, a Jew understand Jesus? Like, when you were growing up, uh, was Jesus ever mentioned in your home? Uh, <laughs> no, no, as a matter of fact, it's a classic that the name of Jesus tends not to be mentioned, um, at least when I was growing up among Jews. It's a very funny thing, because... Um, but uh, uh, Rosalind Moss, who some of your listeners may be familiar with, Mother Miriam, uh, she says that in her home, her mother wouldn't allow the name Jesus. He was always that man. So he was not spoken of at all. But I went to um, a secular school. And so, you know, there were, you know, there were Christmas carols at Christmas time. There were um, some references to Jesus from the culture. But I certainly didn't hear anything about him um, from my home or from my Jewish religious education. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so uh, who did you think Jesus was at that part in your life? Was he uh, just uh, something that these Gentiles talk about, or uh, I thought you know, I was very. I, I mean, I, I grew. Up, I was the first generation after the Holocaust. My parents were both German Jewish refugees, so I was very aware of um, the Holocaust. I was very aware of anti-Semitism. And I associated it, not completely illegitimately, if I can say so, with the prevalence or the predominance of Christianity. And so, um, in my view, my understanding, that uh, Jesus was a false messiah. There have always been false messiahs that emerge within Judaism and get a following. But he was the most disastrous one, because he was the most successful false messiah, and his, his followers are still around 2,000 years later, and they were the cause of, um, frankly, all of the suffering of the Jewish people for the last 2,000 years. So he was a bad guy because he was a false messiah that um, started this movement, which was a very heavy source of persecution for Jews. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, I think that's pro probably be very typical, too. Well, today, uh, um, it's interesting because political correctness has kind of permeated everything around us. So today, actually, there's a much more politically correct interpretation of Jesus in the Jewish community, which is that he was an inspired and charismatic rabbi who is faithful to Judaism, who is simply bringing some very beautiful teachings of Judaism to the people in the face of a kind of ossified infrastructure, you know, represented by the the Pharisees or whatever, and um, and that he was misunderstood by his disciples and that he never claimed to be God or the Son of God, and all of that was a kind of distortion introduced in the first wave of disciples after Jesus. And the worst culprit was St. Paul, who actually was the source of this, the theology underlying the divinity of Jesus. And that's really much more the um, 
party line about who Jesus was now. So the Jews have actually reclaimed Jesus and take credit for Jesus in a sense. And um, Pope Benedict wrote a very beautiful book, Jesus of Nazareth, third volume. He has an extended uh, interchange, imaginary interchange with Rabbi Neusner, who is this incredibly senior and prolific and academic and intelligent American rabbi. I think he literally published over 100 books where he discusses who Jesus was. And Rabbi Neuser in uh, Benedict's book is presenting the view that I just presented, that that Jesus was really a wonderful Jewish rabbi and all of the problems came with distortions introduced by his disciples. Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, I didn't realize that, uh, you know, that more, much more nuanced and like uh, reclaiming the Jewishness of Jesus uh, was out there. That's beautiful. Well, even I've heard even Hindus or or New Agers claim <laughs> Jesus, right? He he went to India in his teenage years, and that's where he learned his. That's you true. know, everyone wants a piece of him. <laughs> well, uh, who does the the Talmud say that the Messiah is? Okay, no, for uh, let me. Uh, I, I heard the introduction, to... you know, that you gave, and I want to kind of. Uh, put a fork in the road here, and and I leave it up to you which side of the fork we go down to. But um, okay. because you introduce this as who you know, what does the Talmud say about Jesus? Now, um, I had you know when I write about this and when I give my talk about this, I usually talk about confirmations of Jesus in the Talmud. So there is a lot in the Talmud that actually confirms what we know a lot of what we know about Jesus including that he performed great miracles uh, including that his disciples could raise people from the dead including that um, when he died the efficacy of temple sacrifices ended including that he was um, crucified on Passover under orders of the uh, rabbis chief priests excuse me and so forth all of that is confirmed by the Talmud which is extremely interesting because the Talmud is not in the business of confirming Christianity so there's that road in the fork we could go down. Um, if you, I don't want to mislead your listeners. If one were to talk about what does the Talmud say about Jesus, one would be introducing a lot of very negative slurs that are thrown around in the Talmud because basically um, the view behind the Talmud was that Jesus was a false messiah. So there are a number of very negative comments about him as a false messiah. Of course, if he was a false messiah and this whole story was made up, then the Blessed Virgin Mary wasn't a virgin, so there's slurs in that direction and so forth. Um, I'll go there if you want. I'm not terribly interested. I mean, of course, what's the Talmud going to say other than that Jesus was a false yeah. messiah, right? Uh, and if he was yeah. a false messiah, of course he should be condemned to hell because that's clearly what should happen to a false messiah that leads the Jewish nation astray. If he, if people say his mother was a virgin, obviously she wasn't a virgin and so forth. So I don't see the point really of just raking that stuff up. It kind of goes without saying. Oh, no. Much more interesting to yeah, me is the inadvertent ways that the Talmud actually confirms who Jesus was. Yeah, I agree too. Because like you said, it does logically follow that you know if, if Jesus was not the messiah, then basically... He was a bad uh, all guy. All things fall, turn out to be false. Yeah, right? but for instance, yeah, uh, but I go ahead. Oh, uh, the for instance, and I think this is like almost perhaps the most mind blowing um, example, and I'll, I'll I'm happy to give lots of other examples. But um, the Talmud and also the Zohar 
recount something which is known as the miracle of the scarlet thread, which was um, that only one day of the year, the the holiest day of the year, the highest holy day of the year, Yom Kippur, was the only day when anyone could enter the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. That was the one day of the year when he would enter the Holy of Holies and offer an animal sacrifice for the remission of sins of the entire Jewish nation. Before he would enter to offer the sacrifice, a scarlet cord was hung around the entryway of the Holy of Holies. The nation of Israel gathered outside that scarlet cord, when the sacrifice was accepted by God for the remission of sins of the Jewish nation, that scarlet cord would miraculously turn white. This was known as the miracle of the scarlet cord or the scarlet thread. This is um, the both the Talmud and the Zohar recount that this happened virtually every Yom Kippur. In, uh, once in a blue moon, it failed to happen when the sins of the Jewish nation were so bad that it required a second year before their sins were remitted, at which point the scarlet cord would turn white. But the interesting thing is the Talmud recounts that about 40 years before the destruction of the temple, that miracle ceased to occur and never occurred again. What was 40 years before the destruction of the temple in about 70 A.D.? It was the, the crucifixion. crucifixion. It was the crucifixion. Yeah. So the Talmud is actually saying that the efficacy of the animal sacrifice by the high priest on Yom Kippur for the remission of sins of the Jewish people ceased. The efficacy ceased. That sacrifice ceased being acceptable to God as of the crucifixion. Wow. Wow. Yes, what's remarkable, like you said, if it's only sporadically that that miracle didn't occur, I mean, you're talking about four decades of Yom Kippur's, which it didn't change. No, much more than that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, up to the destruction of the temple. Uh, Yeah, but I mean, this miracle didn't start when Jesus was born. I mean, it started... Oh, oh, four years of it not occurring. Never mind. Never mind. You're absolutely right. I I jumped a track there. Yes, but oh, it happened no for, you know, decades and decades and decades until it ceased to occur. Yeah. yeah. And uh, do you know if those texts, if they attribute it to anything? Is it just the, the sins of the people were just too well, great? Well, first or? of all, just for our listeners who have, you know, the 26-volume Talmud on their shelf, uh, that <laughs> citation is in the book of the Talmud called Rosh Hashanah, and it's on page 31b of the book Rosh Hashanah, if they don't believe me or they want to verify you or if one of your many Hasidic listeners want to see if I'm telling the truth. But anyway, <laughs> um, the um, yes, I listen. I love listening to Jewish anti-missionaries, they're called. And they're very clever. <laughs> they're very clever. No one ever said the Jews are particularly stupid people. So the answer, if you go to a, a, a basically a Jewish apologist and confront them with this, they, of course, ne- don't want to admit it. They never bring it up. But if you know and they know you know, you can confront them with it. What's their response? Yes, that's true. Because at that time, 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the Jews committed an un- virtually unforgivable sin that was so grave that they weren't forgiven again. Can you guess what that sin was? Uh, Too many of them followed Jesus. Really? Yeah. Pretty wow. clever, huh? Yeah. That, yeah, that's that is a little theological jujitsu there. Yes. Well, you know what? We're coming up to the break. Uh, we're talking with Roy Showman, 
about Jesus and the Talmud. And uh, it's a fascinating conversation, folks. So we got a lot more to talk about on the other side of the break. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics. I'm Gary Machuda. Stay tuned. And welcome back, everybody. We're talking with Roy Shulman. And, uh, Roy, you know, I, I'm sorry, kind of cut you off at the end of that last segment. Uh, so when anti-missionaries... Uh, they're confronted with this material about the miraculous changing of the crimson thread uh, ceasing at uh, roughly about 33 A.D. Uh, or 30 A.D. Um, what was the the uh, the reason they give for this miracle stopping? That um, the reason the miracle, which was an invisible indication that God had accepted the uh, sacrifice for the remission of sins of the Jewish people. So the miracle ceased occurring because God would not forgive the Jewish people. And why wouldn't he forgive the Jewish people? Because they had committed such a great sin. And what was that great sin was that many of them had followed Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> so they concede the fact that the miracle did cease around the time of the crucifixion. They, they have to because it's and, in and the And even Talmud. link it to it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it was completely reversed. Um, well, they don't link it specifically to the crucifixion, but they link it to Jesus's ministry. Yes. Yeah, that's what I meant. Very good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, how can you disprove something like that? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, can I, can I uh, just, uh, I mean, I, I never have enough time, no matter how much time you give me, but can I go through some of the other really neat things? From the Talmud yeah, that absolutely. confirmed Jesus. But, you know, before you do that, though, I, I realized, can you really quickly explain what the Talmud and the Zohar is? Uh, I'll, I'll stop mentioning the Zohar so I don't have to explain what it is because it's kind of spurious <laughs> in a lot of ways. But, okay, the, the official Jewish story is the following, which is that when God called Moses up on top of Mount Sinai during the Exodus, he gave him the written Torah in written form. And he also gave him oral teaching because the understanding in Judaism was the written Torah could not possibly be enough because you always need explanation. You always need gloss. This is, by the way, very interesting as a Catholic because it's exactly the same position the Catholic Church has about sola scriptura. That, yes, it's wonderful to have written scriptures, but you still need a magisterium to let people really understand what it means. And Judaism had that. So it had the written scriptures given to Moses and the oral law given to Moses on top of Mount Sinai, supposedly. That oral law was preserved as an oral tradition passed from teacher to disciple until in between the giving of the law on Mount Sinai to about 130 A.D., when the Jews were finally dispersed definitively from Israel. And at that point, the rabbis said, we can no longer rely on the oral tradition being passed down faithfully because the Jews will be scattered around the world. We'd better write it down. And that's what the Talmud is. Very good. All right. Okay, so where else do you want to go? Well, well for instance, the, the Talmud confirms that the followers of Jesus were not only able to heal the sick in the name of Jesus, by saying, I heal you in the name of Jesus, even when they were at the point of death. And um, let me read the passages from Abu Dazarah. Um, it's incredible from a Catholic perspective. No man should have any dealings with the heretics. That actually refers to Jews who have become followers of Jesus. Nor is it allowed to be healed by them even for an hour's life. 
It once happened to Ben-Dama that he was bitten by a serpent, and Jacob of Capharnaum came to him to heal him. But Rabbi Ishmael did not let him. His soul departed, and he died, whereupon Rabbi Ishmael exclaimed, Happy art thou, Ben-Dama, for you were so pure in body and soul, which left you in purity, nor have you transgressed. For one having dealings with the heretics may be drawn after them. In other words, this, this man who died is being extolled uh, uh, for his holiness because a disciple of Jesus, whose name was actually Jacob of Capernaum, we know that Capernaum is where Jesus had a lot of his ministry, came to heal him in the name of Jesus, but this man would not allow him, and therefore he chose to die instead, which was an example of his holiness. So inadvertently, the Talmud is telling this story to show that you should not have anything to do with the Christian Jews, but inadvertently it shows that Jesus' disciples were healing people at the point of death in the name of Jesus. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it must have been, there must have been a large number of them for, you know, there be a need for them to have this instruction, you know, being written down and be authoritative. Um, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, Father Newhouse actually claims that f I think five million Jews in the first decade or two after Jesus entered the church. Yeah, I think I mean I'm not saying I'm not giving my imprimatur to that number, but um, it was definitely a big deal. They were formally excommunicated around that same time I mentioned around 130 A.D. The the Jews who were had entered who were followers of Jesus. It was called the way in those days. They were only formally excommunicated in the year 130. They were clearly a big presence, and they were actually active still in, in, in synagogue worship and in the temple. Until I don't know about in the temple in terms of sacrifice, probably not, but in terms of uh, teaching and being present, so much so that they had they were formally excommunicated at that point. So yeah, it's it's. I mean, we think of. By definition, the Jews who became followers of Jesus, we no longer think of as Jews. But they didn't stop thinking of themselves as Jews until they were excommunicated formally from Judaism, which was only about 100 years later. Yeah. So this text, uh, it pronounces a blessing on someone who is willing to die rather than have uh, the name Jesus spoken over his wound or be healed. Yes, uh, because the words so, used by the disciple in that passage in the Talmud was, Quote, we will speak to thee in the name of Jesus. We will heal thee in the name of Jesus, right? Just like in Acts, when Peter healed a lame man in the name of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Walk. Yeah. It, you know, what's also kind of interesting is it assumes that he would have been healed. Exactly. You know, it, that's a that's an interesting presupposition, you know, that this might have been so common that they actually do become healed that... Uh, you know, it becomes an unspoken presumption in this. And not only that, that it has to be directly addressed, right? In yeah. other words, it's enough of a problem, <laughs> exactly. so we better tell people they're not allowed to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's fascinating. So uh, so you have a kind of, uh, uh, not a direct, but an indirect confirmation that uh, sins cease to be, uh, or excuse me, that sacrifice for sins cease to be efficacious four decades before the destruction of the temple. And now you have a testimony that uh, there is a real phenomenon of healing occurring in the yeah. name of Jesus. The, today, I mean, most Jews don't know the Talmud, and if they go to the rabbis, the rabbis will 
frankly, I hate to say it, often deny these passages, you know, unless they're forced to acknowledge them. But so a lot of some Jews today even say that Jesus is a mythical figure and Jesus never existed. And in fact, the Talmud unambiguously asserts many facts of his life. They, they, uh, they assert his birth. They assert his uh, childhood in Egypt. They assert his making, doing miracles. And they assert his uh, crucifixion. Uh, so let me read that passage, if I may. Um, this is from um, Sanhedrin. Actually, the book Sanhedrin has the most descriptions of Jesus. Sanhedrin 43. It was taught on the eve of Passover... Jesus the Nazarene was hung. A herald went forth and cried, He is going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. Anyone who can say anything in his favor, let him come forward and plead on his behalf. But since nothing was brought forward in his favor, he was hanged on the eve of Passover. So you see, you see that um, uh, in affirmation that Jesus of Nazarene existed, that he was going condemned to death because he practiced sorcery, in other words, because he performed miracles and enticed Israel to apostasy, in other words, got a lot of followers. And he was hanged on the eve of Passover, which is exactly when he was crucified. There are other passages which describe his illegitimate birth, so they're actually acknowledging the history, of course, they're 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 misinterpreting it, but they're acknowledging the story of his uh, virgin birth. They uh, there's a passage where he's accused of having acquired his magical abilities, because of course, if he wasn't really of God, then all of his miracles must have been sorcery. He acquired his abilities as a sorcerer in Egypt, where he grew up. So the Talmud is confirming that he spent his childhood in Egypt, and it dates his uh, execution by hanging. Uh, at the age of 33 or 34. So it's, it's correct in that also. So it's very hard to wow. argue uh, for, uh, for, I don't know how to put it, but for an honest Jew on the basis of Jewish scriptural writings to argue that Jesus never existed. And the whole story is there in the Talmud. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, and the fact that they did not deny. I mean, it would have been a lot easier just to say that Jesus is this mythical figure, that he never worked miracles. It was just, uh, you know. Yeah, but they couldn't uh, because it was too close in history, right? We can never deny. We could not deny now. Well, actually, people are starting to deny that man ever walked on the moon. But it would be tough to deny that, you know, no one ever went to the moon. 200 yeah, years from now, it'll be a lot easier. But now people are actually doing it. But they couldn't have done it in 1980. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so in a sense, they're, they're forced to confront certain issues. And uh, like you really beautifully laid out, like all those different, there, Jesus is a real historic person, worked miracles, had a large following because it led people into apostasy, uh, was crucified, uh, virgin birth even, you know, because mm -hmm. there has to be a counter story to yeah. that. Uh, yeah, that's amazing, Roy. Uh, let me uh, let me just give a couple of other little little uh, nice little tidbits, um, which as uh, these are uh, I don't know how to put it, but they're you'll, you'll see why they're less they're less in the realm of um, of uh, history and they're more in the realm of theology. But okay, okay uh, it's we asked have less than a minute though. Uh, less than a minute, really? Oh, you have a break. Um, yes. Uh, okay, well then I'll just mention one of these and maybe coming back. Okay, the Talmud asks, when will the Messiah appear? 
And the following is, is, is this, the answer is the world is to exist 6,000 years. In the first 2,000 years for desolation, for 2,000 years the Torah will flourish, and the next 2,000 years is the Messianic era. By Jewish reckoning, reckoning the world was created about 4,000 years before Christ. After 2,000 years, Judaism began with Abraham, and 2,000 years after that, Jesus came. That's probably a pretty good place to cut in. This is Roy cutting into the pre-recorded program to say we've come to about the halfway point in the show. And as we usually do at this point, we have a short musical break. So I will now turn to that short musical break. And I'll be back in a few minutes with a continuation of the show that I did with Gary Machuda on his show, Hands-On Apologetics about the Jewish expectations of Jesus before he came and what the Talmud has to say about Jesus. You're listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria with me, your host, Roy Shoman. We'll be back in a few moments. And welcome back, everybody. We are talking with Roy Showman about Jesus and the Talmud. And, uh, Roy, you know, we'll just have to have you back for us, part two, if we can't cover everything. But uh, you were cut off a little bit right before the break. So if you wouldn't mind, could you read that passage? Sure. The, um, the question is asked in the Talmud, when will the Messiah appear and how long is the world supposed to exist? And the answer in the... Uh, Talmud is that the world is supposed to exist for 6,000 years, 2,000 years between the creation of the world and the appearance of the Torah, 2,000 years of desolation. Then for 2,000 years, the Torah will flourish, and then the Messiah comes, and for the next 2,000 years will be the Messianic era, and then the 6,000 years will be up, and it'll be the end of the world. Now, the Jewish calendar dates the creation of the world to about 3,800 B.C., it really was about 2,000 years between then and when the Torah flur- Judaism began, actually, with the call of Abraham, and then 2,000 years between the call of Abraham and when Jesus came. So the Talmud actually correctly dates the coming of Jesus as about the year zero. Um, interestingly, the Talmud also says that after the coming of the Messiah, the world is still to continue for about 2,000 years, which brings us about right up to today. So that's one reason I like this <laughs> passage. It gives me hope that um, we'll live to see the second coming. Um, but uh, there are, of course, many other. There, there are many passages that are familiar to many of us in the Old Testament that uh, date the coming of the Messiah to around the time that Jesus came, um, most famously uh, in Daniel chapter 9, but I think that would be a little bit heavy to go into. But in fact, it um, it dates the coming of the Messiah to exactly when, um, or exactly about 30 A.D. or 27 A.D. when Jesus began his public ministry uh, to the year. And this is going like over 490 years predicting into the future when the Messiah will appear. Yeah, very good. Yeah, we had Dr. John Bergsma on the show uh, to go over Daniel 2, 7 and 9. And uh, so, yeah, it, and in fact, if you look at the writings in the first century, even pagan writings, 
uh, they realized that the people in Judea were expecting a leader to arise and basically be the governor of the world. Uh, and yeah. of course, they understood it to be pagan emperors. But uh, yeah, the um, there's one theological um, statement in the Talmud that as particularly as Catholics, I find absolutely irresistible, which is the Talmud not only asks, you know, when will the Messiah appear, but it also the Talmud is very involved with um, the sacramental system of Judaism, meaning the um, animal sacrifices and actually other sacrifices too. And uh, so the Talmud asks, after the Messiah comes, will the sacrifices cease? Will the need for the sacrifices cease? And, and will we stop make giving sacrifices? It teaches... In the Old Testament, there are probably at least a half a dozen different kinds of offerings, you know, the wave offering, the grain offering, the the um, Thanksgiving offering, and so forth and so on. The answer in the Talmud is that after the Messiah comes, all of the offerings will cease except for one, the Thanksgiving offering, which would never cease to occur even after the Messiah came. What's Eucharist mean? It means Thanksgiving. Yeah, very good. <laughs> so, what, yeah, that's interesting. So uh, when the Messiah comes, then all these other different offerings cease, except for one type of except, offering. Which is the Eucharist. The Thanksgiving offering. Yeah, it's the Eucharist. Which is the Eucharist. Yeah, so in, in a sense, it almost gives a nod to the fact that the Eucharist is a sacrificial meal. Ab absolutely, and that is actually... It's actually more than a sacrificial meal. It's actually a making present once again, the actual sacrifice, right? Yes, absolutely. So it actually wow. is a yeah, continuation of the sacrifice. The, you know, bloody once, but, you know, I, I don't know the right theological language. You know, I, I don't want to get in trouble, but you know what I mean? Made, 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 instituted again, made present again each time the Mass is offered. Absolutely. Yeah. As a matter of fact, that's another wow. little interesting parallel. Uh, again, a Eucharistic parallel with Judaism, which is that Passover, of course, the Last Supper was a Passover Seder. We've talked about that before. Um, the celebrating the Passover Seder in Jewish theology is not a remembrance. It's a making present. It's a making present of the exodus from Egypt. It's a making present of the uh, redemption of the Jews from Egypt, uh, so much so that it's an obligation. Uh, basically, you're cut off from the Jewish people if you do not participate in the exodus from Egypt by celebrating the Passover Seder. So it's very parallel, or it's a prefigurement, I should say, a picture in advance of the Mass, because the Mass is a making present. It's not a memorial. It's a, it's a being present again, and yet even the Passover Seder in Judaism was thought of a, as a being present again. Interesting. So, so when they when the Jews practice the seder, they they believe that they are in some way participating in the actual historical. Yes, and and the graces the graces from the Exodus, and the miraculous intercession of God on the behalf of the Jews in Egypt, are coming to them. Wow. So, uh, so maybe could you spell out for us then what would that mean in terms of the Eucharist? Um, I, I, what I, well, the the um, what it looks like to me is that the um, supernatural—I don't know the right word—supernatural, metaphysical, cosmic event of the Mass, 
where the mass violates time and space, and when the mass is celebrated, the people at the mass are actually present at Calvary receiving the grace of Jesus' sacrifice, that that whole picture of the mass was prefigured or prophesied or whatever in the Passover Seder, because the exes from Egypt, well, anyway, because the Passover Seder and, well, the, the first Mass was, of course, the Last Supper, which was a Passover Seder. The Passover Seder itself is a kind of um, mirror image in advance of the Catholic Mass. And even this mystical, supernatural aspect that it is not a ceremony or a celebration, but it's a kind of violation of space and time in the cosmos to be present again, is, is also um, a parallel. Wow! Yeah, I didn't know that that uh, that line of thought was there in the Talmud. You got to brush up on your Talmud. I I know. I'm I, joking. I have to. That's for sure. <laughs> I um, have a little bit of reading to do. Um, I, uh, I I I you know I have a clock in front of me. I I know that I only have two or three minutes. So can I race through one more mind blowing thing in the Talmud? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Jews aren't dumb. Obviously, there are two sets of Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, one that talk about the suffering servant who will suffer and die for the redemption of sins, the other that talks about the uh, victorious Messiah that will usher in the heavenly Jerusalem. Okay, Even Jews could recognize those two sets of prophecies. So they were asked with the question, they asked in the Talmud, what's going on with these two sets of contradictory prophecies? The answer in the Talmud is there are going to be two messiahs. A first messiah who's going to come to suffer and die, and a second messiah who's going to come to uh, eliminate death and suffering and, and so forth and usher in the heavenly Jerusalem. So there'll be two messiahs. So they got that right, right? In other words, they got that right in the sense that we know that it's one Messiah who's going to have a first coming and a second coming, Jesus. But they saw the two comings and they thought it was two Messiahs. So they gave these two Messiahs names in the um, Talmud. The first Messiah who would come to suffer and die was called Messiah ben Yosef, the Messiah, the son of Joseph. The second Messiah who would come to usher in the heavenly kingdom was called Messiah ben David, Messiah, the son of David. In the New Testament, when it's Jesus' humanity that is being emphasized, what's he called? He's called the son of Joseph, right? You know, this is just the carpenter's son there. You know, he's nobody special. And when it's his divinity being emphasized, he's called Jesus the son of David, right? Heal me. You can heal me. Son, you know, Jesus, son of David, heal me. So, in fact, the... Um, you know, the, the human nature of Jesus and the divine nature of Jesus in the... Um, in, in fact, in the true manifestation of the coming of the Messiah, already kind of foreshadowed in the Talmud or understood in the Talmud in the terms of not you know two natures in one person, but two comings of two different persons, but they were given the right names. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so, uh, so the suffering uh, servant would be the Messiah ben Joseph? Yeah, exactly. And the conquering king would be the Messiah uh, ben David? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so uh, that's really interesting. So they get it right, but they split them into two different messiahs. Well, come on. I mean, I mean, I mean. You know, you're you're sitting there three thousand years ago. Um, yeah. There's there's clearly two things going on. You know, right. who, who would have guessed it would be one messiah coming twice? Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And uh, so, in a sense, they're waiting for the messiah to come again. 
but they want to come get the first time while we're waiting for the second time. <laughs> there are no simple answers to any of these things. Once upon a time, that would have been true. But now I think um, they're, ex they're waiting for the second coming, but they think the first coming is not an individual person. They see the first coming. The general trend in Judaism is to see the first coming of the Messiah as representing the suffering of the Jewish people up till now. Okay, very good. Well, Roy, how can people get a hold of your material? Well, the first thing they should do, if they haven't already, is get my book. If they've been interested in the show, they'd be interested in the, my first yeah, book, absolutely. Salvation is from the Jews, The Role of Judaism in Salvation History from Abraham to the Second Coming. Everything I've talked about today is in that book. I mean, it's about this transformation of Judaism into the Catholic Church and the, and the sacraments with a historical overlay. I don't, can't go into that now. Um, I have a website, salvationisfromthejews.com, which has tons of material on it. And I have a radio show on Radio Maria on Saturday afternoons called Jesus the Promised Messiah of Judaism, radiomaria.us, 3 to 4 Eastern Standard Time. And um, I, I give a lot of talks and conferences and so forth, and I keep those uh, up, um, an up-to-date list of those on the website, salvationisfromthejews.com. So that's the easiest way to kind of follow up. Very good. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. And keep up the good work. Thank you. Hi, welcome back. You're listening to Radio Maria. Hi, welcome back. This is Roy Showman on the Radio Maria show, Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism. If you've just tuned in, we're listening to a show that I did a number of weeks ago on another radio program called Hands-On Apologetics, the host of which is a friend of mine, Gary Machuda. And the topic of the show was the Jewish expectations of Jesus and Jesus in the Jewish Talmud. So I will now at this point simply continue with the second half of that pre-recorded show. And welcome back, everybody. We are talking with Roy Showman about Jesus and the Talmud. And uh, Roy, you know, we'll just have to have you back for us, part two, if we can't cover everything. But uh, you were cut off a little bit right before the break. So if you wouldn't mind, could you read that passage? Sure. The, um, the question is asked in the Talmud, when will the Messiah appear and how long is the world supposed to exist? And the answer in the... Uh, Talmud is that the world is supposed to exist for 6,000 years, 2,000 years between the creation of the world and the appearance of the Torah, 2,000 years of desolation. Then for 2,000 years, the Torah will flourish, and then the Messiah comes, and for the next 2,000 years will be the Messianic era, and then the 6,000 years will be up, and it'll be the end of the world. Now, the Jewish calendar dates the creation of the world to about 3,800 B.C., it really was about 2,000 years between then and when the Torah flur Judaism began, actually, with the call of Abraham, and then 2,000 years between the call of Abraham and when Jesus came. So the Talmud actually correctly dates the coming of Jesus as about the year zero. 
Um, interestingly, the Talmud also says that after the coming of the Messiah, the world is still to continue for about 2,000 years, which brings us about right up to today. So that's one reason I like this <laughs> passage. It gives me hope that um, we'll live to see the second coming. Um, but uh, there are, of course, many other. There, there are many passages that are familiar to many of us in the Old Testament that uh, date the coming of the Messiah to around the time that Jesus came, um, most famously uh, in Daniel chapter 9, but I think that would be a little bit heavy to go into. But in fact, it, um, it dates the coming of the Messiah to exactly when, um, or exactly about 30 AD or 27 AD when Jesus began his public ministry uh, to the year. And this is going like over 490 years predicting into the future when the Messiah will appear. Yeah, very good. Yeah, we had Dr. John Bergsma on the show uh, to go over Daniel 2, 7 and 9. And uh, so, yeah, it, and in fact, if you look at the writings in the first century, even pagan writings, uh, they realized that the people in Judea were expecting a leader to arise and basically be the governor of the world. Uh, and yeah. at first they understood it to be pagan emperors. But uh, yeah. the, um, there's one theological um, statement in the Talmud that, as particularly as Catholics, I find absolutely irresistible, which is the Talmud not only asks, you know, when will the Messiah appear, but it also the Talmud is very involved with um, the sacramental system of Judaism, meaning the um, animal sacrifices and actually other sacrifices too. And uh, so the Talmud asks, after the Messiah comes, will the sacrifices cease? Will the need for the sacrifices cease, and, and will we stop make, giving sacrifices? It teaches, uh, in the Old Testament, there are probably at least a half a dozen different kinds of offerings, you know, the wave offering, the grain offering, the, the um, Thanksgiving offering, and so forth and so on. The answer in the Talmud is that after the Messiah comes, all of the offerings will cease except for one, the Thanksgiving offering which would never cease to occur even after the Messiah came. What's Eucharist mean? It means Thanksgiving. Yes. Yeah, very good. <laughs> so, what, yeah, that's interesting. So uh, when the Messiah comes, then all these other different offerings cease, except for one type of except, offering. Which is the Eucharist. The Thanksgiving offering. Yeah, it's the Eucharist. Which is the Eucharist. Yeah, so... In a sense, it almost gives a nod to the fact that the Eucharist is a sacrificial meal. Absolutely. And that is actually, it's actually more than a sacrificial meal. It's actually a making present once again, the actual sacrifice, right? Yes, absolutely. So it actually wow. is a yeah, continuation of the sacrifice. The, you know, bloody once, but, you know, I, I don't know the right theological language, you know, I, I don't want to get in trouble, but you know what I mean, made, 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 instituted again, made present again each time the Mass is offered. Absolutely, yeah. As a matter of fact, that's another wow. little interesting parallel, uh, again, a Eucharistic parallel with Judaism, which is that Passover, of course, the Last Supper was a Passover Seder, we've talked about that before, um, the celebrating the Passover Seder in Jewish theology is not a remembrance. It's a making present. It's a making present of the exodus from Egypt. It's a making present of the uh, redemption of the Jews from Egypt. Uh, so much so that it's an obligation. Uh, basically, you're cut off from the Jewish people 
if you do not participate in the Exodus from Egypt by celebrating the Passover Seder. So it's very parallel, or it's a prefigurement, I should say, a picture in advance of the Mass, because the Mass is a making present. It's not a memorial. It's a, it's a being present again, and yet even the Passover Seder in Judaism was thought of a, as a being present again. Interesting. So so when they when the Jews practice the Seder, they, they believe that they are in some way participating in the actual historical... Yes, and, and the, graces, the graces from the Exodus and the miraculous intercession of God on the behalf of the Jews in Egypt are coming to them. Wow. Wow. So, uh, so maybe could you spell out for us then what would that mean in terms of the Eucharist? Um, I, I, what I, well, the, the, um, what it looks like to me is that the, um, supernatural, I don't know the right word, supernatural, metaphysical, cosmic event of the mass, where the mass violates time and space, and when the mass is celebrated, the people at the mass are actually present at Calvary, receiving the grace of Jesus' sacrifice, that that whole picture of the Mass was prefigured or prophesied or whatever in the Passover Seder, because the Exodus from Egypt, well, anyway, because the Passover Seder, and, well, the, the first Mass was, of course, the Last Supper, which was a Passover Seder. The Passover Seder itself is a kind of... Um, mirror image in advance of the Catholic Mass, and even this mystical, supernatural aspect that it is not a ceremony or a celebration, but it's a kind of violation of space and time in the cosmos to be present again, is is also um, a parallel. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know that that, uh, that line of thought was there in the Talmud. you got to brush up on your Talmud. I, I know. I'm I, joking. I have to. That's for sure. <laughs> I have um, a little bit of reading to do. Um, I, uh, I, I, you know, I have a clock in front of me. I, I know that I only have two or three minutes. So can I race through one more mind-blowing thing in the Talmud? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Jews aren't dumb. Obviously, there are two sets of Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, one that talk about the suffering servant who will suffer and die for the redemption of sins, the other that talks about the uh, victorious Messiah that will usher in the heavenly Jerusalem. Okay, even Jews could recognize those two sets of prophecies. That, so they were asked with the question, they asked in the Talmud, what's going on with these two sets of contradictory prophecies? The answer in the Talmud is there are going to be two Messiahs. A first Messiah who's going to come to suffer and die, and a second Messiah who's going to come to uh, eliminate death and suffering and and so forth and usher in the heavenly Jerusalem. So there'll be two messiahs. So they got that right, right? In other words, they got that right in the sense that we know that it's one messiah who's going to have a first coming and a second coming, Jesus. But they saw the two comings and they thought it was two messiahs. So they gave these two messiahs names in the um, Talmud. The first messiah who would come to suffer and die was called Messiah ben Yosef, the messiah, the son of Joseph. The second messiah who would come to usher in the heavenly kingdom was called Messiah ben David, Messiah the son of David. In the New Testament, when it's Jesus' humanity that is being emphasized, what's he called? He's called the son of Joseph, right? You know, this is just the carpenter's son there. You know, he's nobody special. And when it's his divinity being emphasized, he's called 
Jesus, the son of David, right? Heal me. You can heal me. Son, you know, Jesus, son of David, heal me. So, in fact, the, um, you know, the, the human nature of Jesus and the divine nature of Jesus, in, the, um, in, in fact, in the true manifestation of the coming of the Messiah, already kind of foreshadowed in the Talmud or understood in the Talmud in the terms of not you know, two natures in one person, but two comings of two different persons, but they were given the right names. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so, uh, so the suffering uh, servant would be the Messiah ben Joseph? Yeah, exactly. And the conquering king would be the Messiah uh, ben David? Yeah, exactly. David. Yeah, so uh, that's really interesting. So they get it right, but they split them into two different messiahs. Well, come on. I mean, I mean... I mean, you know, you're you're sitting there three thousand years ago. Um, yeah. There's there's right. clearly two things going on. You know, right. who, who would have guessed it would be one Messiah coming twice? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And uh, so, in a sense, they're waiting for the Messiah to come again, but they want to come get the first time while we're waiting for the second time. <laughs> there are no simple answers to any of these things. Once upon a time, that would have been true. But now I think um, they're, ex they're waiting for the second coming, but they think the first coming is not an individual person. They see the first coming. The general trend in Judaism is to see the first coming of the Messiah as representing the suffering of the Jewish people up till now. Okay, very good. Well, Roy, how can people get a hold of your material? Well, the first thing they should do, if they haven't already, is get my book. If they've been interested in the show, they'd be interested in the, my first yeah, book, absolutely. Salvation is from the Jews, The Role of Judaism in Salvation History from Abraham to the Second Coming. Everything I've talked about today is in that book. I mean, it's about this transformation of Judaism into the Catholic Church and the, and the sacraments with a historical overlay. I don't, can't go into that now. Um, I have a website, salvationisfromthejews.com, which has tons of material on it. And I have a radio show on Radio Maria on Saturday afternoons called Jesus the Promised Messiah of Judaism, RadioMaria.us, 3 to 4 Eastern Standard Time. And um, I, I give a lot of talks and conferences and so forth, and I keep those uh, up, um, an up-to-date list of those on the website, SalvationIsFromTheJews.com. So that's the easiest way to kind of follow up. Very good. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. And keep up the good work. Thank you. Well, that's it for the previously recorded show with Gary Machuda, in which I talked about Jesus in the Talmud and the Jewish expectations for the Messiah in the Talmud. So, basically what the Talmud had to say about the Messiah uh, looking forward in time and what it had to say about Jesus um, after Jesus came. Anyway, I hope it was of interest to you. Uh, I know that that show ran a little shorter than this show usually does, so I have come to the end of the show a few minutes before the show normally ends. However, it is nonetheless time for me to say goodbye, to thank you for listening and to hope that you tune in again next week, same time, same place, for Jesus the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. This is Roy Shoman saying bye for now. <laughs>